Hello and welcome to the Zero to Finals podcast. My name is Tom and in this episode I'm going to be talking to you about deep vein thrombosis and venous thromboembolism. And if you want to follow along with written notes on this topic, you can follow along at zerodefinals.com slash DVT or in the hematology section of the Zero to Finals medicine book. So let's get straight into it. Venous thromboembolism, which is shortened to VTE, is a common and potentially fatal condition and it involves blood clots, which are thrombosis, developing in the circulation. This usually occurs secondary to stagnation of blood and hypercoagulable states. And a hypercoagulable state is a state in which a person is more prone to developing blood clots or thrombosis. When a thrombosis develops in the venous circulation, it's called a deep vein thrombosis or a DVT. And once a thrombosis has developed, it can mobilize so it can loosen and come away and travel through the circulation. And this is called an embolism. And it travels from the deep veins through the right side of the heart and into the lungs, where it becomes lodged in the pulmonary arteries. And this blocks the blood flow to areas of the lungs. And this is called a pulmonary embolism or a PE. If the patient has a hole in their heart, for example, an atrial septal defect, the blood clot can pass into the right atrium through the atrial septal defect into the left atrium and left side of the heart. And from there, it can travel up in the systemic circulation to the brain and cause a very large stroke. So if somebody presents with a very large stroke and a DVT, think about whether they might have an atrial septal defect. Let's talk about risk factors. There's a number of risk factors that can put a patient at higher risk of developing a DVT or a PE. And in many of these situations, for example, in surgery, we give patients prophylactic treatment to prevent VTE. And we'll talk about prophylaxis a bit later. So these risk factors are things like immobility. So reduced mobility compared to what their baseline is. Recent surgery. Long haul flights where they're immobile for a long time and in the air sat in a chair. Pregnancy, hormone therapy with estrogen, so think about the combined oral contraceptive pill or hormone replacement therapy. Malignancy, cancer is a big cause of DVTs and PEs. Polycythemia, which is a high hemoglobin or high red cell count. Inflammatory conditions like systemic lupus erythematosus and a condition called thrombophilia, where you're more prone to developing blood clots. A quick Tom tip for you, in your exams, when you see a patient who's presenting with possible features of a DVT or a PE, ask them about risk factors such as periods of immobility, recent surgery or long-haul flights, and this will score you some extra points in your OSCEs because your examiners will be impressed that not only are you thinking about the diagnosis, but also the risk factors and the cause. Let's talk about thrombophilias briefly. Thrombophilias are conditions that predispose patients to developing blood clots and there's a large number of these conditions and some examples are things like antiphospholipid syndrome and antiphospholipid syndrome is the one to remember for your exams, antithrombin deficiency, protein C or protein S deficiency, factor V Leiden, hyperhomocysteinuria, prothrombin gene variant, and activated protein C resistance. So this is a large number, but the key one to remember is antiphospholipid syndrome. The other thing to remember about antiphospholipid syndrome is that it causes recurrent miscarriages. If you have a patient presenting with a DVT or recurrent DVTs, and they've had some miscarriages, 
this is your answer in your exams. Let's talk about VTE prophylaxis. And every patient who's admitted to hospital should be assessed for their risk of venous thromboembolism or VTE. If they're at increased risk, they should receive prophylaxis with low molecular weight heparin, such as anoxaparin, unless this is contraindicated. The contraindications could include active bleeding, existing anticoagulation with warfarin or a NOAC, or previous adverse reactions to low molecular weight heparin. We also use anti-embolic compression stockings that squeeze the lower legs and help with the drainage of the veins from the lower legs and prevent DVTs unless these are also contraindicated. And a contraindication for compression stockings would be significant peripheral vascular disease. So how does a DVT present? Well, DVTs are almost always unilateral. Bilateral DVTs are rare, and bilateral symptoms are more likely to be due to an alternative diagnosis like chronic venous insufficiency or heart failure. DVTs present with calf or leg swelling, dilated superficial veins, tenderness to the calf, particularly over the site of the deep veins, edema, so fluid building up around the leg and the ankle, and changes in colour to the skin on the leg. To examine for leg swelling that might indicate a DVT, measure the circumference of the calf 10 centimetres below the tibial tuberosity. More than a 3 centimetre difference between the two calves is significant, so patients are allowed to have slightly asymmetrical calf sizes but if this is more than three centimeters you really need to be thinking about a dvt always ask questions and examine with a suspicion of potential pulmonary embolism as well so if they have signs of a dvt think are they having chest pain shortness of breath low oxygen saturations and so on let's talk about a scoring system that you need to remember for your exams and clinical practice and that's the wells score and the wells score predicts the risk of a patient presenting with symptoms actually having a DVT or a PE. And this takes into account risk factors like recent surgery and clinical findings like unilateral leg swelling more than three centimetres above the other leg. So how do we establish a diagnosis? There's another test called a D-dimer, which is a sensitive, it's over 95% sensitive, but not specific test for venous thromboembolism. And this is a blood test that is useful for excluding venous thromboembolism where there is a low suspicion. This means it's almost always raised when there is a DVT. However, there's a number of other conditions that can also cause a raised D-dimer when there isn't a DVT. And the things that can cause a raised D-dimer other than VTE is pneumonia, malignancies, heart failure, surgery, pregnancy, and various other things. Doing an ultrasound Doppler of the leg is required to diagnose a deep vein thrombosis. And NICE recommend repeating negative ultrasound scans six to eight days after the first one if there's a positive DVT and the well score suggests that a DVT is likely because the initial ultrasound Doppler may have missed the diagnosis or the clot may not have been big enough at that time to spot on the ultrasound. So you need a repeat to make sure that it's negative. A pulmonary embolism can be diagnosed using a CT pulmonary angiogram or a CTPA or a ventilation perfusion scan or a VQ scan. So how do we manage DVTs and VTEs? The initial management is with the treatment dose of low molecular weight heparin and this should be started immediately 
before confirming the diagnosis in a patient where a DVT or a PE is suspected and there's likely to be a delay in getting the definitive investigation. Examples of low molecular weight heparin are things like anoxaparin and doltaparin. After the initial management with low molecular weight heparin, you need to switch to a long-term anticoagulation. And the options for long-term anticoagulation in VTE are warfarin, a NOAC or a DOAC, or continuing the low molecular weight heparin. So we're going to discuss these three different options and their pros and cons. Firstly, let's start with warfarin. Warfarin is a vitamin K antagonist. So it works by inhibiting vitamin K, and vitamin K is essential in developing blood clots. So by inhibiting the vitamin K, it helps to prevent blood clots. The target INR for warfarin in patients with a DVT or a PE is between 2 and 3. So you have to monitor the INR closely and titrate the warfarin dose to establish an INR between 2 and 3. And when switching to warfarin, you continue the low molecular weight heparin for 5 days or until the INR is between 2 and 3 for 24 hours whilst on the warfarin, whichever is longer out of these two options. NOACs, which are also called DOACs, are essentially oral anticoagulants that are not warfarin. And these are an alternative option for anticoagulation and they don't require monitoring in the same way that warfarin does. Originally they were called novel oral anticoagulants, which is why we called them NOACs, but this has been changed to non-vitamin K oral anticoagulants because they're no longer novel because we use them quite a lot. And this is again changing to DOACs, which stands for Direct Acting Oral Anticoagulants. The main three options that you need to be aware of and remember for your exams are Apixaban, Dabigatran and Rivaroxaban. The final option is to continue low molecular weight heparin for the long term. And this is actually the first line choice in patients with pregnancy or cancer. And there's some guidance on how long you should continue the long term anticoagulation for. And this would be typically three months if there's an obvious reversible cause. For example, they've had major surgery and then they develop a DVT. And you'd review after three months to see whether they need to continue. You'd continue beyond six months if the cause is unclear or if there's recurrent DVTs or VTEs or if there's an irreversible underlying cause such as thrombophilia. Often we continue to six months and then review it and often stop after six months. Again, you would continue for six months if there's active cancer and then review whether you need it ongoing. We need to talk about one final option for treating DVTs and VTEs, and this is to insert an inferior vena cava filter. Inferior vena cava filters are devices that are inserted into the inferior vena cava, and they're designed to act like a sieve and filter the blood and catch any blood clots that are travelling from the venous system towards the heart and the lungs. So essentially they allow blood to flow through while stopping larger blood clots from entering into the heart and progressing. They're used in unusual cases of patients with recurrent PEs and for those that are unsuitable for anticoagulation. Next, let's talk about how you would investigate an unprovoked DVT. So this is a patient who have their first DVT or their first VTE without any clear cause. And NICE recommend that we should investigate these patients for possible cancer. And to screen for cancer, they recommend taking a detailed history and examination, doing a chest x-ray, checking bloods for a full blood count, 
calcium and liver function tests, doing a urine dipstick, and then in patients who are over 40 years old, doing a CT of the abdomen and the pelvis to look for cancers within the abdomen and pelvis. And for women over 40, you would also do a mammogram to look for breast cancer. They also recommend testing for antiphospholipid syndrome, which is checked for by testing for antiphospholipid antibodies. Additionally, in patients who have an unprovoked VTE and a family history of VTE, they recommend testing for hereditary thrombophilias. And you test for FACT5 Leiden, which is the most common hereditary thrombophilia, prothrombin G20210A, protein C, protein S, and antithrombin. Finally, let's briefly talk about Bud-Chiari syndrome. Bud-Chiari syndrome is where a blood clot or a thrombosis develops in the hepatic vein and blocks the outflow of blood from the liver. It's also associated with hypercoagulable states and it causes an acute hepatitis because the blood collects in the liver and irritates all of that liver tissue causing inflammation and hepatitis. There's a classic triad that you should remember for Bud-Chiari syndrome. And this is abdominal pain, hepatomegaly, and ascites. The management involves anticoagulation, again with heparin or warfarin, and investigating for the underlying cause of the hypercoagulation and treating the hepatitis. So thanks for listening to this episode on DVTs and VTEs. A big thank you to Harry Watchman for perfectly editing this podcast. It wouldn't be possible to maintain this podcast without his hard work, reliability, and skills. If you found this podcast helpful and you want written notes on this topic and all the other podcast episode topics, head over to Amazon and pick up a copy of the Zero to Finals Medicine book. It's got detailed and concise notes on over 160 topics just like this one in medicine and it's designed specifically to contain all the key facts and guidelines you need for your medical exams. If you don't fancy picking up a copy of the book, you can find all the notes as well as videos, illustrations, questions and a blog completely free on the Zero to Finals website at zerotofinals.com and I hope you tune in for the next series which will be all about rheumatology.